Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Halloween was yesterday, yes, I know, but I thought I would just kick off the show, well, let's just say with the sound that strikes fear into the hearts of men everywhere. (laughs) What was that sound? It was the sound of one surgical glove snapping. I always try to celebrate the season with a creepy story. So this year, I have three lined up for you this program. The first one is about, ew, bed bed bugs. The second, about the medical industrial complex. And the third, about chronic pain. Three things that you should be scared of, or should you? I'm going to start off, uh, kicking off, with... Bed bugs. Now, you may not be as clued into the social media as uh, I am, but uh, with my French newspaper every morning, but I can tell you it was all over France. The bed bug hysteria. Pictures of seats on the metro buses swarming with bed bugs. These are tiny little insects, a little about the size of an apple seed, and they feed on human blood. Now, the problem is that, well, as you guessed it, global warming. These guys like it nice and warm. They also like it nice and dark, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But these guys are also pretty... Uh, good at infiltrating your um, infiltrating your bed and your couch, and they like to hitch a ride on your luggage when you travel. So you know those little things that most hotel and motel rooms have that are like a little stand that you pull apart to put your bags on. Well, use it. All right, don't put your luggage on the bag because that. Uh, on the bed because that gives the bugs time to climb into your bags. And, you know, there's been a lot of travel going on, particularly in the wake of uh, COVID. Everybody had a travel Jones. They were deprived. And boy, did they travel last year and this year. And of course, after decades of widespread use, the chemical insecticides that used to kill off bed bugs. Yeah, they're not working so much anymore. And cases are up all over Europe and all over the United States. According to Switzerland's Pest Advisory Service, which maintains one of the few long-term data sets about the insects, I have to just parenthetically say that you've got to love the precision and the just kind of what we would call in Chinese med, uh, medicine, the metal, M-E-T-A-L, of the Swiss. They are a really orderly, uh, orderly mindset. Anyway, they've been keeping records on bed bugs since the year 2005. And back then, the, uh, the complaints in Zurich numbered to about 20 a year. Of course, there's a place to complain to, but that's, again, Switzerland. A decade later, they had gone up to 300 a year, and that is across uh, 
that is probably reflected in other European capitals as well, but hey, they don't take as good records. Probably soon, if not already, there won't be a city without bedbugs, and they do like the hotels. So where do they come from, bedbugs? It's kind of an interesting story, actually. DNA analysis suggests that these are closely related, evolutionarily, to parasites that prey on bats. Of course, humans shared caves with bats way back when, and also the... um, these pests uh, like to parasitize birds, which probably nested in the early straw-thatched roof, great nesting material thatch. Now, the good news, I've given you the bad news. The good news about bedbugs is they are not a, d- a disease vector. Unlike mosquitoes, which spread malaria, dengue, yellow fever, and Zika, all fun viruses, uh, we do not have any known human pathogens uh, like I said, they like a warm environment, and uh, they like to shelter in the seams or cracks in the wall. They come out at night to feed. They love those warm homes, especially central heating. And, of course, climate uh, does also lead to some decentralized heating. Now, how can you tell whether you have bud bugs? Well, first of all, you might see them. As I said, they're around the size of a, sm- of a small apple seed. Uh, you'd have to kind of sneak up on them with a light in the middle of the night. Uh, uh, but, hey, that could work. The other way you can tell, of course, is by the bites. So we're going to take a moment and just, for those of you who haven't had the pleasure, describe what when to suspect bed bugs. And I'm assuming that you all have a passing acquaintance with both flea bites and mosquito bites. So we're going to do a compare and contrast, which they tell me is great didactic tape techniques. So here we go. Bed bugs are pimple-like, red and a little bit swollen, and they occur in clusters or a straight line or kind of a zigzag. But basically, the bed bug crawls around and therefore it's going to leave a trail of bites. Fleas, on the other hand, although they are, they're a little bit smaller uh, than bed bugs, their bites are a little bit smaller. And they're extremely itchy. Bed bug bites may actually not itch at all. And that's one of the important differentiations. Of course, if you are habitually getting bit by the bed bugs, you're likely to develop an allergic reaction. Uh, and then, of course, that uh, will, that itchiness will come along for the ride. Another way to differentiate is, uh, from mosquito bites, mosquito bites are much, much bigger and, for most of us, very itchy. And as they say in real estate, location, location, location. Uh, bed bugs like to bite at night. They like the face, the arms, the neck, upper body in general. Fleas tend to hit you on the legs, lower extremities, and also in skin folds, groin, <clears throat> back of the knees, stuff like that. And... Uh, Mosquitoes, well, anywhere that's exposed or even under thin clothing is fair game, but mosquitoes are going to generally bite you when you're outside, not inside. So those are pretty much the differentiations. How can you get rid of bed bugs if you have them and you you make you may be experiencing the privilege soon? Well, First of all, pyrethroids, this is the stuff that we spray animals with. I recommend using permethrin, 
uh, and spraying that on your clothing when you're going to an area where there's malaria. I have people let it spray on their clothing and let it dry. Uh, you can look up the concentrations. You can buy it at any animal feed store. It's typically sprayed on the animal's fur, but humans can spray it on their clothing. It should not be sprayed directly on skin, however, and it's pretty safe for use if you're just spraying it on your clothing. It goes through a couple of washings. Definitely something I do whenever I visit the tropics. Uh, you can kill the bed bugs by desiccating them, so uh, dia- diatomaceous earth. If you're trying to get it, let's say, under the couch and in the uh, in the creases of the mattress, maybe you're trying to get it into the cracks in the wall. Uh, those that'd be a good thing to kind of put on there. It kills them by desiccating them. Uh, they also uh, can be killed by certain oils, but that's messy. A lot of companies are now offering bed bug treatments that involve basically putting a tent around the infected furniture or mattress and then heating it up to about 45 degrees centigrade. And that's not cheap. Uh, so hope that's helpful. And also, I hope that uh, by now you've scratched yourself at least once or I haven't really done my job. Another thing to help keep you up at night, at least it keeps me up uh, at night, and that's Big Health. You've heard of Big Pharma? Well, Big Pharma has start, is now eating uh, Big Insurance. Well, Big Insurance is now eating Big Pharma and eating uh, pos- Big Hospital and eating, well, just about anything that's available for forage. A lot of, lots happened in, the, in October. Uh, 75,000 employees of Kaiser went out on strike. They did that because they wanted to draw attention to staffing shortages playing the country's hospitals and clinics. I'll also point out the same thing has happened uh, several times in the last year in France with everybody going out on strike to protest staffing shortages and uh the decline and burnout and all of the other things that happen when one person is asked to do the work of 1.5 and take extra shifts while they're at it. Uh, In October, uh, 10 drug makers actually agreed to negotiate prices with Medicare. A little arm twisting there, but definitely a historical moment. First time that companies and the United States government have ever haggled over prices. Thank you, George Bush, for making that illegal until now. Uh, well, maybe we should thank the Republican Party. I actually think they did that. You know that they stayed up in the middle of the night and snuck, snuck the, uh, Medicare Part D through with the donut hole and that clause about not negotiating? Yeah, you got to love politics. Anyway, uh, there's a lot going on in this country. We spend $4.3 trillion, uh, trillion a year on health care. That's 17% of the gross domestic product. That's twice as much as anybody else in any other rich economy spends. Well, actually, no, it's twice as much as the average that the other rich economies spend. And uh, I've been on the soapbox for a while about not uh, about the pharmacy benefit managers who are a middleman who have been uh, extracting a lot of money, really very much like a mosquito or a tick or a leech, uh, doing unnecessary stuff. These are the intermediaries, okay? So insurance, uh, 
pharmacies, drug distributors, and uh, worst of all, pharmacy benefit managers, which are simply middlemen. But there's also supply middlemen, and they all live off the markup. Those big health things, that's 45% of all the money we spend, and a lot of that's going into stockholder profits and corporations and not into uh, the corporeal beings that it's supposed to benefit. Eight of the top 25 companies uh, are in this big health category. This is in 25 companies in the S&P 500. Four, by the way, big tech make the S&P, and none of the big pharmas make the S&P. So this is big. And Four private health insurers account for 50% of all enrollments. The biggest is United Healthcare Group. It uh, may it was let's see fourth fifth in line uh, for profits last year. It behind Walmart, Amazon, Apple, and Exxon Mobil. It has 151 million customers. That's half of all Americans, and it is the twelfth most valuable con- uh, company in the world. CVS Health, which is the uh, the biggest of the big uh, big pharmacy big health companies, made up a quarter of all pharmacy sales. And at the same time, the big chains are actually closing down pharmacies and creating drug deserts in rural communities because hey, you can't make a profit serving the public uh, or enough profit to make it worthwhile. And who the hell cares if people have to drive an hour to get their drugs? They can just buy them online from your online drug company, right? You're just basically helping your business. How did this happen? Well, one of the things that happened with the insurance companies, at least, is Obamacare. Obamacare uh, basically capped profits from insurance business. And this set up, it backfired, guys. It set up an unintended consequence, a perverse incentive for insurance companies to buy clinics, buy pharmacies, and merge with large companies. United Healthcare paid $13 billion for a data analytics firm called Change Healthcare. This data analytics firm processes insurance claims for just about the rest of the insurance industry, including the big ton, ten ton gorilla, right? United Healthcare. So, all of these companies are trying to create vertical monopolies. Can you say Kaiser Children? That's a vertical monopoly. You own the hospital, you own the doctors, you own the pharmacy, you own the physical therapy, you own it all, and you can decide how many of whatever to hire. Now, I'm not ripping on Kaiser because unlike most of the rest of big health, Kaiser actually has a fairly significant, how should we put this, oversight by a board composed of actual physicians who took the actual Hippocratic Oath. But uh, United Healthcare's Optum Health has bought up so many doctor's practices that it has about 2,200 clinics and 70,000 doctors. And CVS is moving into the clinics. Many studies have found that after hospitals acquire physician practices, 
Prices actually increase, but quality of care does not. Part of the reason that quality of care does not is because they tend to fire a lot of the support staff that were affecting profits by providing service to the clientele. And those pharmacy benefit managers I talked about, they actually set the prices that you pay for your copay, and they get to pocket the difference between your copay and the price of drugs. Have you ever wondered why you end up paying more for a generic drug than you might get from Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drug Company? Well, it's because he buys them on the same generic wholesale market as CVS, but but then they only charge a fixed 15% markup. If you want to have some fun sometime, go to goodrx.com and you don't put in your insurance information. This has nothing to do with your insurance. But go ahead and search your drug and scroll down and look at the different cash prices that are being charged the uninsured by these by these pharmacies. And we're talking about large chain pharmacies. And the prices are all over the map. So the convenience of your local big box pharmacy may be far outweighed by the actual increased freight that you pay when you could be getting this stuff at a cheaper source. Uh, turns out Amazon has started its own health care clinic. It paid $4 billion for One Medical, which is a primary care provider, and now it's running an online services called Amazon Clinic offering virtual consultations, and those doctors that you get the virtual consultation from, they'll be happy to... Uh, give you a prescription that you can obtain from, you guessed it, Amazon. In fact, Prime members can buy unlimited generic drugs for a small additional fee. Ain't that grand? Uh, This is scary. And this level of consolidation has, dare I use the F word, and I, I mean, not the one you're thinking, I mean fascist. It feels a little totalitarian and fascist to me. And yeah, that keeps me up at night. So I've given you a few things to uh, worry about, and that'll probably interfere with your sleep. And I'm about to make you worry about not sleeping. So the creepiness continues. Let me start by saying that when a patient comes in with a weight control issue, one of the things I always ask about is sleep. That's because poor sleep and excess weight reinforce each other in a sort of mutually assured deterioration cycle. And sleep is fundamental to overall health and longevity. The average person, which I'm sure you've heard, spends about a third of their life sleeping. And the American Academy of Sleep Medicine says that we should get about seven hours per night on a regular basis. And, you know, in the last seven years, only about 65% of adults in the U.S. were meeting that amount, according to population-based studies. Now, there have been also what we call longitudinal studies of sleep disorders, looking over time at what diseases do you get and what blood changes do you have. We now measure things like leptin, the satiety hormone, and ghrelin, the hunger hormone. You may remember those obese mice pictures from about a decade ago 
where the thing that was the thing those mice didn't have was they didn't they were leptin uh, they couldn't make the satiety hormone, so they became very, very fat because the, uh, their epigenetics was turned off for making leptin. Well, we humans appear to have something like that as well, but instead of happening across generations, it happens across weeks. Uh, poor sleep, as we know, can impair cognitive per, uh, performance, and you know that leads to increased motor vehicle accidents and w- accidents at work. So there's fairly significant economic impact here that is very hard to account for. And, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of reasons not to sleep, right? Noisy dog next door, in pain, uh, occupational influences like shift work, family responsibilities like getting up to uh, rock the baby, travel and jet lag, uh, group activities that keep you up at night, and, and just taking care of yourself and your household. But there's more, right? In the last 20 years, the media, communication, and entertainment industries have left the living room and found their way into the bedroom, not just a TV on the nights on the table across from the bed, but a indispensable device that you're addicted to that goes everywhere with you called a smartphone. And these are strongly implicated in what is an epidemic of poor sleep quality, probably also tracking to the increasing epidemic of obesity. The two are going hand in hand and they're feeding each other. So when you restrict sleep, you activate something called the orexogenic system. The orex, uh, and so in other words, you get more orex, you get, you get the orexin release and orexin keeps you awake right? It's the stay awake hormone. In fact, one of the interesting new sleeping pills that I've been using in my elders because it doesn't, it because of this fact, it blocks the orexin receptors, so it helps them sleep, but it doesn't have the cognitive effects and it's non-sedating once it, where it's not sedating exactly, it just turns off awake rather than sedating the brain was very significant difference. You're flipping down a light switch rather than unscrewing the light bulbs. Uh, This works with the hormones leptin and ghrelin. I already talked about that. And they control the food reward system and hunger. So where does leptin come from? It's created by white adipose tissue. And when you fill up those fat cells with food, they're uh, they send a satiety signal, and it decreases further food consumption. I'm done. I'm full. Not hungry anymore. Ghrelin is made by something called the oxynitic glands in the stomach. And there's a lot of interesting glands in the stomach that they didn't teach me about in medical school. Uh, it's responsible for the sensation of hunger. This is why, after removing part of the stomach... Uh, or shrinking the stomach so that it's less in contact with food by using a stapling or a bypass or a, a banding process, you lower ghrelin levels in the bloodstream and that reduces the sensation of hunger. So they did a study, they've done lots of studies on this, it's well established, but they looked at just over a couple of days, two days of sleep rest- restriction and two days of sleep extension. So sleep restriction, four hours in bed, Uh, sleep extension 10 hours in bed, 
and they saw very clear decreases in leptin levels and increase in hunger, ghrelin levels, in the people who were on the four-hour sleep deprivation. And, you know, being a surviving intern, a recovering intern and medical resident, I can tell you that sleep dep- one of the ways that you can deal with sleep deprivation is to overeat. And in fact, that was one of the things the older residents told me when I was tr- falling asleep as an intern is, go eat something, it'll help you stay awake. Well, it does, but there's a problem with that. It also, it, re- it essentially activates orexin, right? So I eat something, I'm awake, but boy, am I going to put on weight, right? More food and less sleep. Shift working is a real problem for people, and if you, uh, if you, if you, even if you go to sleep late, the so-called night owl, going to sleep at say two a.m. and waking up at ten, you get more eating after eight p.m. You get actually more eating close to your sleep time, and you get poor sleep efficiency. Deep, you don't get as much deep uh, non-REM sleep. This has an effect on the, the autonomic nervous system, and this causes increased abdominal obesity. So it actually, sleep deprivation actually directs the extra calories to the gut, and of course, that visceral adipose tissue can actually make hormones that stimulate hunger. So uh, this particular type of fat it is not the good fat-making leptin. It actually makes ghrelin. If you put people in a controlled situation where they, where they are, where what they're eating is absolutely controlled, they're in a motel room basically and the doors are locked, uh, and then you play with their bedtimes, you can see a substantial change in their neuro, neuroendocrine tissue over the course of about 14 days. So sleep is really, really important. And Getting And a kid needs more sleep, and that's another problem, is getting our children uh, enough sleep is, is really critical. Children need uh, longer. It varies by age. You can look it up, but the recommendation on the average is 9 to 10 hours of sleep. And we know that adolescents tend to be somewhat nocturnal, so that plus the social media and the cell phones is really leading to a perfect storm here. And just to make it worse, this perfect storm is aggravated because you get sleep apnea as you get overweight. So sleep apnea is a common complication. It leads to increased stress. It aggravates the weight gain because the steroid hormones that are released are pro-weight gain and pro-adipose, visceral adipose fat. You know, the... United States Preventative Services Task Force, which is very conservative, says, you know, there's no evidence that we should be screening uh, for obstructive sleep apnea in asymptomatic adults. I disagree with that. I really do. I think anyone with hypertension or anyone who has a BMI of above 27 probably should, uh, and is over 40, should probably be screened. And we are seeing sleep apnea now in teenagers. So... It's uh, important to realize that this has a long-term 
impact on people's health and can lead to cardiovascular complications and, like I said, hypertension. How do you figure out if you need to if if you might have sleep apnea? Well, let me give you the STOP acronym here. Do you snore loud enough to be heard through a closed door or louder than when you're talking? Are you tired in the daytime? So S for snore, T for tired, O for observed apnea. Has a a close friend uh, with the opportunity to observe said that yeah, you stop breathing when you sleep. Or do you have high blood pressure, P for pressure? I think all hypertensive need, hypertensives should probably be screened for sleep apnea if their BMI is above 27. Now, many of them will choose not to treat that, but treatment for sleep apnea can just include a, a committed weight loss program. Fun fact, just moving to alcohol, another thing that is messing with our sleep, uh, alcohol is associated with much poorer sleep Uh, quality and higher chances of developing what's called short sleep duration, waking up in the middle of the night. It also aggravates sleep apnea because it reduces muscle tone in the tongue, so you get louder snoring and a higher uh, apnea index. It also messes uh, with slow waves. It increases slow wave sleep, decreases REM sleep, affects memory, causes sleep arousal in the second half of the night. And I didn't know this, but it's really super interesting. Um, Alcohol, as it's being broken down in the body, breaks down in such a way that that you create as a byproduct of processing alcohol a neurotransmitter, adenosine, that keeps you awake. We actually use adenosine for stress tests. We give people a shot of this. And it's called the adenosine stress test, and it makes their heart beat really fast. It's a strong stimulant. So we are creating a neurotransmitter that's stimulating when we drink. Uh, Also, some of the other drugs that might be considered recreational, uh, in some circles anyway, ecstasy. Ecstasy users have an increased risk for sleep apnea. People with cocaine and heroin tend to have a sleep maintenance insomnia. In other words, they shallow sleep with lots of awakening. And people and cannabis users tend to have more what's called sleep onset insomnia. They find it harder to go to sleep. And yeah, smoking, yeah, one more. It does it too because nicotine is a stimulant. So I wanted to take just a moment and talk about treatments for insomnia. And there is something you can find online called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So this has been studied and it's used to treat insomnia kind of paradoxically. First, you sleep deprive people. And while you're doing that, you improve their sleep hygiene. So I'll go over a list of all of those. But when you do the two together, you get substantially better results than when you just do the sleep hygiene uh, alone. So the combo is really important. So create a consistent sleep schedule, a fixed time to sleep and a fixed wake-up time, including weekends. This has really helped me uh, as a 65-year-old woman to get better sleep. Creating a bedtime routine where you follow the same steps each night. Again, the sort of thing you do with an 8-year-old, Yeah, it works with an 80-year-old as well. Some kind of of relaxation and stress management. I give people breathing exercises because they're quick and easy to learn and they work. 
stop uh, unplugging from electronics for an hour before bedtime, either putting on amber-colored glasses or going to uh, non-LED lights in the bedroom also helps with the production of melatonin. Um, I'm thinking about putting incandescence in the bathroom because my bathroom ratio is ritual uh, at bedtime is taking long enough that I don't want to really be bathing in LEDs uh, because of the effect on melatonin. Obviously, com- uh, comfortable temperature, a little cool is actually supposed to be better, and getting daily morning sunsight, sunlight exposure. And one last thing for those of you that go to the gym after work, if you have issues falling asleep, you'll want to avoid activity three to four hours before bedtime. You're actually better off getting up early and going to exercise because of the uh, benefits to your sleep. Uh, Now, if you don't have insomnia and you're exercising at 9 p.m. and you wake up, bounce out of bed feeling refreshed, not your problem. But I really want to encourage anyone who is struggling with their weight to fix their sleep before they go and buy another diet book. Time for some emails, I think. So this from uh, Troy. Uh, Hello, Dr. Don. Have you seen this study? Too much HDL appears to be a problem. This is from WebMD.com. Men should aim for an HD level of 40 to 60 milligrams per deciliter, and women should aim for 50 to 60. In one study... People who had an HDL cholesterol level above 60 were nearly 50% more likely to have a heart attack or die from heart disease than people where HDL levels were between 40 and 60. And so uh, I imagine this will cause a problem using the, and he goes on to some to give me a link to a MESA risk score that shows a lower risk the higher the HDL. You mentioned some something similar to this back in 2016, Wow, Troy, I'm impressed that you uh, actually have uh, are able to tell me that I mentioned this in 2016. I don't know if I could tell you that. Uh, and also in 2012. But this study appears to be more generalized. Yeah, and Troy, that's probably the problem with generalization. I think what we're dealing with here is um, a what we would call a bimodal curve. And so... Let's let me just define the, the terms here. Your HDL is the healthy cholesterol. It is best conceptualized as the recycling truck for cholesterol. So it's taking it off to be used in a way that gets it out of your uh, of the chance of getting into your arteries. LDL, low density lipoprotein, on the other hand, is packaged and going out and if the particles are small, something that regular listeners will understand, uh, they are dangerous, particularly in the presence of inflammation, where they can be mistaken effectively for bacteria by the white blood cells, which then uh, engulf them. And because they can't digest them, because they're in fact not bacteria, uh, deposit them in the arterial wall, forming a kind of scab in areas where there's stress on the endothelium, usually hypertension or in areas where there are corners, turns in the road. I went on this go-kart thing once uh, when visiting Connecticut with my um, husband's family, and it was a round track, and we had these go-karts, and we could race each other. But the edges of the curve, the wall that 
we all bounced off of periodically trying to pass on the outside had lots of scrape marks on it. And so the more you can think of that as sheer force. Now, these walls just got skid marks from the bumpers, but you're but that kind of a skidding by um, a turn in the blood vessel actually causes a small injury. And that injury can sort of lead to deposits of plaque in that area. It's kind of the body's attempt to protect itself, a bit like forming calluses on your feet if you uh, walk around barefoot all the time. But it can, of course, block the artery because it's a finite num- amount of space in the inside of an artery, and that leads to, through a couple of other steps, the formation of a crack, which leads to platelets, which leads to a heart attack. I think what's going on here is that there are good HDLs and bad HDLs. Uh, there's a family, for example, in Italy, it's a clan, and they all live, I, I don't remember where in Italy it is, but uh, Big Pharma went and made a drug based on their HDL, I don't think it ever got released, but this family had very low HDL levels and no heart disease, but they had a mutation. And so their HDL was like super good. And this is a regulated system, right? The system is trying to maintain itself. So there's a set point for how much HDL and and how much LDL there are uh, in the system. And the, the liver in particular tries to maintain that set point. It's trying to balance things. So if you have super good HDL, you don't need as much. Your levels will be low, but your benefit will be great. On the other hand, there are people who have in a, not very adequate HDL. It isn't doing its cleanup job. Uh, so as a result, people who have inadequate HDL, another form of outlier in the opposite direction, are going to have very high HDL levels, and yet they will have heart disease because their HDL is ineffective. What that does, because the basic premise of the study you're citing was that all HDL is created equal, and we know that's not true in both directions. So I think that when you try to average out what the healthiest people's HDL were, you're going to be in, uh, you're going to get people who have heart attacks because their HDL is above 60, uh, or rather they have heart attacks because their HDL is actually 110, but when you average it out in a group, it's above 60. So you see, you can't average this because it's an apples and oranges thing, and I think that's what's going on. Studies that have looked more carefully at this, which I am familiar with through functional medicine, suggest that when you get into the 90 to 110 level, that's when you start to see increasing heart attacks. But you have to look at the issue differently and study people with high HDLs, usually women, and look at, and then you can really make pronouncements about what this actually means. It's a bimodal curve. I would not argue that 41 to 60 is a sweet spot for most people, but because the liver will compensate by making more HDL. But I don't think the concept that too much HDL, let's say 75 or 80, is going to be worse than 60, I totally think that that's just a statistical artifact. So uh, another email, this one uh, from Dan in Marblehead, Ohio. Uh, FOD, uh, we'll make this fairly quick. FODMAP and the FODMAP diet. 
Uh, found your show after Dr. Dean retired and love it. Thank you. Download it from the web. Uh, could you address FODMAPs? It turns out that garlic and onions were the main causes of my lovely wife's distress. I modified my recipes to uh, eliminate them. Dining out, however, is problematic. Yes, Dan, I imagine with garlic uh, and onions being out that dining out is problematic because these are important savories. They're sources of sulfur. And so I'm not entirely sure that it's the FODMAP piece, which stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, if you ever wondered what that actually stood for. But these these are certain types of starches. And depending on your microbiome and where your microbiome is, these can be fermented and cause gas. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of these are actually very healthy, good foods for people. And so a, FODMAP, a low FODMAP diet needs to be thought of as a bridge to something else. Lifelong avoidance of these is you know, probably not a great idea. I would wonder also if your wife might have a problem with sulfur, uh, but it's pro- it, it would be interesting to see her DNA and look at her, sulfon- her uh, sulfonation. But That's not going to be something we'll be getting to here. There's a danger here of orthorexia nervosa. I want to give you that. We had a a discussion uh, just now on the uh, promotional about anorexia nervosa, which means that you don't get enough, uh, that you don't eat enough. You are anorexic. You have essentially no hunger, although actually they have hunger. They've just figured out how to psychologically suppress it. Orthorexia is correct eating. People who get very involved in eating properly, maybe everything has to be organic, everything has to be you know, clean, non-GMO, the water all has to be, uh, it has to be reverse osmosis. There are people who are canaries in the coal mine of life and they have to do this, but there's also a lot of I'm going to use the word neurosis, even though they took it out of the DSM-3. There's a lot of neurosis around proper, correct eating. And you've got to, you've, you've got to realize that maybe a good test for your wife, as far as FODMAPs is concerned, is can she eat artichoke hearts? Can she eat asparagus? Because it's probably not... FODMAPs that she needs to uh, avoid if that's the case. People who really have small bacterial overgrowth, those are the people who get gas and distension, and it gets way better when they go on a low FODMAP diet. That tells me that there's some that, that they've got good bacteria in the wrong place rather than bad bacteria in the right place. What's, what's a polyol? Sugar alcohol. A lot of people get farting and belching from xylitol. It's being used, uh, erythriol is also being used now in a lot of sugarless products. Both of these can cause uh, quite a lot of a uh, syndrome that looks a great deal like small intestinal bact- uh, bacterial overgrowth. So the trick here is, if you wonder, go on a FODMAP diet. Look up the Stanford Low FODMAP Diet or send me an email and I'll send it to you. I've got it in my files. I give it out a lot. It's easy to follow. Uh, you eliminate for two or three weeks, you reintroduce one thing at a time, and you personalize the foods you need to avoid. Sounds like Dan and Marblehead did exactly that. 
but I wanted to expand on the issue a little bit as requested. I have an email. I'm going to open that up and see what it says. Okay, so this is from uh, Charlie in Watsonville. Charlie says, I disagree with your criticism of LED lights. I think the issue is that uh, LEDs are generally bluer than the old warm incandescents. The solution is to look for warmer colored LEDs. These are now more available. Uh, that is true. I will say, however, I, I will say, however, that cell phones warm the warm filter on cell phones doesn't work. But warm color LEDs, I have no data, so I can't say. But it's worth a try. And thank you, Charlie. Now, as the last part of this year's scary show, let's talk about the poorly understood phenomenon of chronic pain. Chronic pain is not just the pain of stubbing your toe or uh, having menstrual cramps. It's acute pain. You know, that's what those are. It's a short-lived response, often caused by the release of inflammatory chemicals in your body or neurotransmitters from nerves that have been injured temporarily. Uh, Chronic pain is defined as lasting more than three months, and there's often no identifiable trigger for chronic pain. And that is, of course, uh, terrible because there's nothing you can do about it. But because we are, as physicians, sympathetic, empathic beings, most of us anyway, uh, we try and we use the tools we have and the old adage about when everything looks at your looks like a hammer, often people have gone through multiple surgical procedures, which have actually made their pain worse, before they finally end up in the hands of a pain specialist. So I don't think you realized, I didn't realize, that about 30% of the world's population technically has chronic pain, and about 1 in 10 of the people in the United States have disabling pain. It's the leading cause of disability worldwide. One in three cancer survivors live with chronic pain. Way more common than I think even I realized, and I think I'm not seeing those people because they gave up. But what is pain, all right? So let's take a moment. Pain, most of the time, especially acute pain, happens when a specialized nerve cell on the body's periphery, outside of the central nervous system, reacts to pressure or heat or other traumatic events really happens is that proteins on the surface of these cells deform and they open up a a channel like a valve that allows the flow of charged ions out of the cells these are nerves so they have they have a, a high level of potassium inside and this potassium and this and the chloride flow out but and this triggers an electrical charge that propagates along the nerve, which is working at this point like a cable. This is a signal. Now, this is nociceptive pain. This is where you get signaling from damaged tissue, but the nerve is healthy. The nerve's doing what it's supposed to do. There's another kind of uh, pain, neuropathic pain. And this occurs when the tissue is actually healthy, but the nerves themselves are damaged. A good example of this would be shingles. But then there's this other pain. It's been 
just recently named by the International Association for the Study of Pain. We've all known it was there. We've used different terms for it. Wind up is one of the terms that I was taught way back in the beginning of using learning acupuncture more than 20 years ago. And nociplastic pain is the current terminology. And in this situation, both the tissues and the nerves look healthy, but the pain persists. It's effectively a short circuit in the sensing process that allows for the perpetuation. The body's own pain processing network gets rewired, and now it overacts, it overreacts to oncoming stimuli. Those ion channels that I talked about earlier that uh, were only firing when there was tissue damage, well, now they're firing from even mild sensations. This is called allodynia. And this can also happen centrally if the neurotransmitters, like endorphins, which are supposed to dampen the flow of pain signals, aren't getting made. And there is a part of the brain called the descending pain modulation system, DMPS, DPMS, excuse me. And these are neurons in the brain that that basically, if they're stimulated by acute pain, they turn off the acute pain. And we've all experienced that sensation when we cut ourselves, right? You get a sharp pain, then bam, it's gone. And then over time, you start to get the tissue damage pain, which doesn't have the same kind of uh, stabilizing inhibitory circuitry and climbs up a different pathway. And that's that dull, throbbing, aching pain that we all experience. Back when I was first learning about pain as an undergraduate in neuroscience, there was something called Melzack and Wall's gate control theory of pain. And the idea was that this processing we're talking about is happening at the spinal column. So if you can stimulate different different sensory neurons, you can actually block the pain. And this is where, among other things, uh, per, the uh, transcutaneous nerve stimulation, the TENS units come from, is that this is supposed to act as an interference, like jamming a signal. And it does actually work. I'm sure you've had the experience of when you're getting a shot, I always make a fist and dig my nails into the palms. And my it's not just my attention being distributed. The fact that I'm sending a signal to my uh, brain actually reduces the pain of the injection. Not that the wonderful nurses at Dignity Hospital have given me any pain whatsoever during all of the vaccinations I've had since I became an employee there. They're really good. Now, it's not just the ner- the nervous system. There's actually a researcher named Andreas Gobel at the University of Liverpool who published a paper a couple of years ago that demonstrated that immunoglobulin G could be causing pain, circulating in the bloodstream. It could be affecting the pain threshold. What he did was he took blood from individuals with fibromyalgia, which is a condition characterized with severe pain all over the body, and he injected the serum, the IgG, into mice and gave the mice fibromyalgia. This is a very important finding because we know, for example, that the opioids and the cannabinoids, they're receptors on the white blood cells for both of these. So pain and the immune system are intimately connected. There's other stuff going on 
psychologically, it seems that like the more adverse events you have as a child, the lower your threshold to develop uh, this type of pain. In other words, you're kind of on a hair trigger to rewire your nerve system to be exquisitely sensitive. Well, that doesn't make much sense, but it's real. It is, and it's not a psychological effect. It's a neurophysiological effect, which is part of why all of our drugs don't work very well in this kind of pain. Morphine, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and antidepressants are really pretty ineffective, except at very, very high doses, which causes really big problems with side effects like addiction or stomach ulcers. But what can help? Well, studies have shown that just being listened to and being believed can make it easier to deal with and process chronic pain. A lot of people are being referred to pain management courses lately, and I came across this in this little thing about that in the uh, AARP journal, where they were talking about what the, uh, the about pain and how the Veterans Administration is actually using this type of therapy, a team approach with psychiatric counseling, dietary counseling, exercise coaching, in order to help veterans with chronic pain improve their quality of life and their perception of their pain, and this is working. There's also some virtual reality programs that are out there that are showing promise, where people spend, they get their sort of cognitive behavioral therapy doing VR. It's very, very impressive. Later this summer, there's going to be a trial looking at psilocybin on patients with fibromyalgia to see whether or not we can reprogram their brains. Very exciting. More about this, probably, because there's a new reframing. And I did want to say one last thing, which is drugs. Some of the old drugs that didn't work for pain, when we take just this subgroup of nociceptive pain, they respond. So there may be hope out there. Thank goodness. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.